0: excited about the spiritual aspect of working out and learning how to tie that all together in my whole body. How's it going, amigo? <laughs> it's a Tuesday at 6 a.m. and these two are going for it. You know, James is talking about faith and works and I'm like, okay, you know, this is work. How's that feel? <laughs> Got off the phone with Yo, and she just told me, don't eat before the workout because it might not stay down. So I don't think I'm going to tell my mom that. I've been pressing into my faith a lot more over the last couple years, and I feel like this is an opportunity to take it to the next level most notably in addition to prioritizing workouts into my daily routine or three day a week routine is repurposing my my morning. So I use 30 minutes at the beginning of every day to have coffee and watch the news. And I've actually repurposed that time to enjoy my coffee while while reading my Bible. So I've really embraced that time as a time where I can dig into the book of James and learn more about what God's word has to say um, during this experience. Well, good morning, Wooddale Church. Welcome to week number two of our Get Fit series, and let's just get out of this out of the way right now. It is hard to be one of the bigger guys on staff preaching a sermon series entitled "Get Fit." All right, but here I am, 13 pounds lighter than last month, though. So I'm working hard. We're working. Yeah, thank you, thank you. And I hope that uh, I hope that you too have uh, taken a chance to look at some of your physical fitness in this series. But more important than all of that is the spiritual fitness that we want to be talking about. And throughout this series, we're using a small New Testament book, the book of James, with a wonderful pastor and trainer in James to kind of guide us through and and to look at some lessons from that, that precious book. And I hope that you've had some time to just feed in that book this week and read and just see what God is wanting to say to you. I wonder what you might say to me if I were to look at you and say, you know what? I believe in fitness, and that's enough. I don't need to do anything. I don't need to change anything. I believe in fitness, therefore, I'm going to get fit. You might pull me aside and say, Brian, you are an idiot, all right? You can believe in fitness all you want, but until you get some diet and some exercise, it isn't going to do you any good. Well, James was the half brother of Jesus. He lived in the first century, he pastored a very strategic church, the church at Jerusalem. His church was front and center in the uh, war that was going on against the infant church. They were in such a strategic spot. It was the city where Jesus was crucified and he was buried and he rose again. And his apostles in that city would never be the same. And James, as Jesus' half-brother, was never the same after the resurrection Of Jesus Christ. It was a city where, if you pronounced your faith in Jesus Christ, you stood the real possibility of going to prison in a faraway land. You see, the Roman occupiers didn't take uh, easy and didn't take lightly the the threat of the new Christian church. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had given a man named Saul early on uh, the rights to hunt uh, after Christians and to arrest anyone who belonged to the way. And so being a follower of Jesus cost them something. And so James had a rather unique congregation because it was a congregation that was shrinking locally and dispersing throughout the entire ancient Near East world. And so, like a good trainer and a good pastor, he wrote a letter to those who he had had the opportunity to preach to, to Christians who had scattered all across the ancient Near East world. In the days that James lived, Christians would sometimes argue over secondary issues, and that hasn't changed much in 2,000 years. Sometimes Christians still argue over things that really aren't that essential. If you take a close look at the book of Acts, you see a church that we oftentimes romanticize. A church that we know had some beautiful, beautiful things happening through the power of the Holy Spirit. But it didn't take long for the church that sold everything and had everything in common and was unified to have their fair share of disputes. They disputed over which of the widows uh, should be treated better. They disputed over uh, which apostle was more worthy of being followed. Should we follow Peter? Should we follow Paul? Should we follow Apollos? And what would happen with disputes like that is the church would come together, they would pray, they would have councils, God would work, and things had a way of working themselves out. But there were also some major issues that the church was facing. And that's what we see James dealing with at the start of James chapter 2. James, a pastor dealing with an issue that had really perturbed him and perplexed him. For it seems like there were some who considered themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ who thought that faith in God was enough and they could live however they wanted to live as long as they had professed their faith in Jesus. Almost like they had this cosmic fire insurance, live however you want to live. The thinking went something like this, well Abraham was the father of of the Jewish nation. He had faith in God. It was credited to him as righteousness. If faith was good enough for Abraham, it's good enough for me. And in the end, what it created was a sad argument for a useless faith. Look at James 2, verses 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose that a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. And if, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, keep well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, James tells us, faith, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James, the leader of the council of Jerusalem, has just laid down the gauntlet. In a sense, he's acting as their spiritual trainer in the lives of this dispersed congregation. Sometimes our trainers need to tell us things that we know intuitively, but we aren't living out in practice. In other words, my belief that the principles of fitness would be enough to get me fit without doing anything about it won't do a thing for me. In the same way, James teaches us a spiritual lesson, and that is that you cannot get spiritually fit if you don't use your spiritual muscles. There's a direct correlation between what we say we believe and what we do, between faith and works. So let me ask you a question. Last Sunday, Pastor Dale opened our series up. He preached a magnificent sermon on James 1. If you missed it, go back and watch it online. And he challenged us to do some things over the course of the week. How in the past seven days have you been exercising your spiritual muscles? Have you had a chance to live what it is that you say that you believe? You know, every New Year's Eve, there are millions upon millions of Americans and people around the world who will make a New Year's resolution. And the most common New Year's resolution has to do with fitness. And around the new year, every year, gym memberships explode, fad diets are begun. But what studies tell us is that within 30 days, only 25% of people are sticking with their resolution. And by the end of the entire year, what we find is in any typical year, only 8% of people keep their New Year's resolutions. Now, we're Wooddale Church. We do better than that. We're at 9% here. I'm pretty confident in that, okay? So most people aren't keeping their resolutions. A credit monkey report tells us that if people who purchased gym memberships were truly dedicated to exercising regularly, the clubs would have a real problem trying to squeeze everybody in. That's actually fine with gym owners who expect only about 18% of people to buy memberships that buy memberships to use them consistently. In fact, to be profitable, they need about 10 times as many members as they can actually fit through the door. You know, sometimes we treat our faith like a gym membership. I wonder what would happen if Wooddale Church was committed to being people who said, you know what, God, you have called us to be salt and light in this world. You have called us to be your hands and feet. If we began to pray, God, you're going to do some great things in the world today. Help me to see people with your eyes, to respond with your heart, to to be your hands and feet in this generation. I wonder what difference that would make. In 1896, a pastor named Charles Sheldon uh, wrote a book. and It's a novel entitled In His Steps. It was a series of articles that eventually became a book, and it, it swept the world. The novel was had the premise that there was a pastor who got up in front of his congregation and gave kind of a challenge to them, that as they faced decisions for the next 365 days, that they would first ask the question, what would Jesus do before making the decision? And to try to respond the way that Jesus would respond. And about every 20 years, that book has a resurgence. The last time that happened in America, remember what happened? There were these little bracelets that everybody was wearing that said WWJD. And we were supposed to look at our bracelet and respond, what would Jesus do? And pop culture made fun of it. They had all their own unique spins on it. And the, the, the fad quickly went away. But I wonder, what would it be like to live that way? What would it be like for us to be a people who would not just be people who profess faith with our mouths, but who live it out with our actions. You see, in verses 16 and 17, James gives us a picture of a brother or sister who's poor. And he says, you know, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, keep well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. Every one of us are going to encounter people in our lives who are less fortunate than we are. As Americans, we have been exceedingly blessed in, 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 in comparison to the rest of the world. What are we doing with the blessings that God's given us? According to James, when we see somebody who's hungry, the answer isn't, uh, you know, God bless you, be at peace. The answer is, hey, what, what are you hungry for? You want to come over to my house for dinner? You want to shop in my pantry? The answer when we see a brother or sister who doesn't have clothing isn't, uh, hey, I'll pray for you. Yeah, pray, but it's also putting action to that faith. It's us saying, "Uh, can I take your kids shopping at Target for, for school clothes? It's us getting involved. It's us getting dirty. You know, there was a contemporary Christian music pioneer years ago. He died 40 years ago named Keith Green. Keith died in a plane crash with two of his children, but his legacy lives on. And Keith used to sing a song that was kind of a a haunting song for the church. And there's this line in the song. It's based on this verse where you see your brother or sister in your need. And he says that there are some who will say, God bless you, be at peace. And all heaven just weeps. Because you close your eyes and pretend the job's done. May we not be those people not be, I'm just going to close my eyes, pretend the job's done, say a nice word, say a platitude, but let's be people who demonstrate our faith by our actions. I mean, you hear the disgust in James when he says, you know, don't be those people. That verse 17 is the, the key verse in the entire book. Faith without works is dead. Why? Because our God is a God of action. Our God is a God of justice. Our God is a God who cares for the vulnerable. When, When I'm asked to introduce myself to people, normally I'll talk about the things that are most important to me. And so I'll start with the people who are most important to me. I'll talk about my precious wife. I'll talk about my four kids who I love so much and the beautiful children by marriage that God has brought into our family that have blessed us so much. And because I'm a guy, inevitably it'll come around us. So what do you do? And I'll talk about my job at Wooddale. I'll talk about the privilege I have to pastor here. I'll talk about what I do. God's much the same way. When God talks about himself, he talks about his bride, the church. He demonstrates his love for his children. How much more will God know how to give good gifts if we as fathers know how to give good gifts to our kids? But he also tells us what he does, what his job description is. One of those places in Scripture that where we see the job description of God is Psalm 68, 4, and 5, where he describes himself as a father to the fatherless and, and a defender of widows. One of the primary things that God does in this world is to take up the cause of the powerless, of the vulnerable. Justice is to care for the vulnerable. Author Tim Keller writes that the Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. It occurs more than 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably. It also means giving people their rights. Justice then, he says, is giving people what they are due, whether punishment, protection, or care. That is why if you look at every place the word is used in the Old Testament, several classes of persons continually come up. Over and over again, mishpat describes taking up the care and the cause of the widows and the orphans and the immigrants and the poor, those whom have been called the quartet of the vulnerable. The mishpat, or the justness of a society then, according to the Bible, is evaluated in how we treat these groups. Think about that. Any neglect shown to the needs of the members of this quartet is not merely a lack of mercy or charity, but it is a violation of justice. God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power, and so should we. That's what it means to do justice. The Bible speaks about this all over. Perhaps the most famous verse in all of Scripture is the Old Testament prophet Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where he says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? read this with me, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, to walk humbly with your God is simply an acknowledgement that God is God and we are not, that he is greater than we are, that his plans are greater than our plans are. It is saying yes to what God asks of us. It means that we reorient our lives around his priorities and the greatest priority he has is that we would love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Kindness, we know what that is. It means to value and treat others above ourselves. Kindness doesn't have to be a huge thing. Sometimes kindness is best expressed to small things done with great love, and it can absolutely change the world. Throughout history, Christians have been known for their Kindness. Christians were the people who rescued the babies that were being thrown into the dump. Christians started the first hospital. Christians were the first to allow women to get an education. Christians were the ones who, 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 who were, the, in society, the ones who were front and center in dealing with the, 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 the ills that society was dealing with. We've got to be known for that. Those are things God cares deeply about. And we do this not for our glory, but for the glory of God, for his name. We are the representation of Jesus Christ in this generation. How are we making him look to the world? When people see his church, do they they want more of him? Or are they repelled? A few years ago, someone at my previous church texted me. He said, hey, Brian, I hear you're cooking challenged. And and what he was getting at was we had... uh, had some renters in our house, and they hadn't been paying their rent, and we moved back into our home, and the oven was broken, and we just didn't have money to replace it. So for a period of several months, we were like a stovetop microwave family, and my boys missed chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> and so this guy texts to me, he says, Pastor Brian, I hear a cooking challenge Call me, and my initial response was, cooking challenge? I'm not cooking challenge. Man, I make a mean peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I can make some awesome mac and cheese, but then I realized, oh, he's talking about our oven. So I called him and he said, Hey, Pastor Brian, we've been praying about it, and my wife and I want to buy you an oven. It was so sweet. My boys were thrilled. My wife was so happy. I'll never forget that act of generosity. You know, we love it when people do kind things for us, we all do. Here at Wooddale Church, we've often said that we want to be known for more, more for what we're for than what we're against. We don't want to just be people who help others when it's convenient for us, who are God bless you, be it peace people. We want to be people who go the extra mile. James said that such faith that doesn't act the way that God wants us to, to act is a dead faith. Do you want a dead faith? Is that the characterization of faith that, that you want God to see when he looks at you? no. And when we fail to exercise our spiritual muscles, what happens is, like any other organ, spiritual atrophy creeps in. Listen, if your faith hasn't changed you, if it hasn't rearranged your priorities, your faith probably hasn't saved you. Because genuine faith means that we begin to adopt God's principles. It means that we begin to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. There's no space for being a spiritual couch potato. We've got to get in the game. Our pastor trainer, James, knew that there would be those in this congregation who'd start to have some excuses. They'd want to tell James why they just couldn't be those people. And in verse 18, he says, but someone will, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. If this were written in 2019, it might sound something like this. You have your truth, I have my truth. You do you, I'll do me. But listen, we'll never get spiritually fit If we continually make excuses, Kent Hughes writes this. He says, faith and works are like wings of a bird. I love that description. Have you ever seen a bird with a broken wing? It's one of the most pitiful things in the world. I've seen little birds, they'll hit the window and they get injured and they're just hopping up and down and they want so bad to soar, but they can't get up because they need both wings to soar. And it's that way spiritually. We're never going to soar if it's faith without works or works without faith. God created you to soar. Soren Kierkegaard um, used to tell a parable about an imaginary place called Duckland. He said it was Sunday morning and all the ducks dutifully came into church and they waddled through the doors of, of the church that day. And they waddled to their pews where they comfortably squatted. And when they were all well squatted and the hymns were well sung, the duck minister went to the pulpit and he opened his sermon And he looked at the ducks and he said, ducks, you have wings. And with wings you can fly like eagles. You can soar in the sky. Use your wings. It was a marvelous and an elevating duck scripture. And all the ducks gave a hearty duck amen to the pastor. And then they plopped down from their pews and they waddled out of church. (laughs) And it's a great, ironic look at what we do sometimes as Christians. So many times we leave unchanged. And whether it's a church service or it's us being the church and reading God's word, whether it's a life group and God convicting us and amen, and then we don't change, we leave with a faith that is so much less than God wants for us. God doesn't want you to have a duckland faith. James continues, You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? When I was growing up in the Chicago area, my dad worked at a savings and loan and his job was providing mortgages for people looking for homes. And there was this couple that came in and his heart just kind of broke for them. They were in a tough spot and they had a son and they lived in the neighborhood across the street from us, which my parents told us we could never go to because it was too dangerous and my my dad and mom said, we've got to invite this family over. They had a son in between my age and my brother's age. And, and um, my parents boldly invited this family to come to church with them. And the mom and dad said, no, we don't really want to go to church, but you can bring our son. We like going to the flea markets on Sunday morning. And so we brought their son week after week after week. And, and our version of Woods on Wednesday, about six months into being in relationship with him, he trusted Jesus as his Savior. He kind of became the fifth Schulenberg boy in our family. And man, his faith grew as a young boy by leaps and bounds. He wanted his mom so bad to know Jesus. He said, Mrs. Schulenberg, will you please tell my mom what I've done? Will you please help her understand how she needs to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And so my mom would share Christ with her new friend, and her friend would say, I believe, that's enough. I mean, I've got enough God to get out of hell. That's all I want. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be part of a family. I don't want to change the way they live. Isn't that enough? Well, Not according to James. James says, you believe there's one God good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. There's not a demon alive who's an atheist, friends. Some of our demons would make the best theologians. I mean, they've seen God and his glory. They've seen the very throne room of heaven They know Jesus rose from the dead. They've seen the power of God. And everything they know doesn't make a bit of difference in relationship to their relationship with God because they close their hearts to him. Remember my argument, I believe in fitness. Listen, I could have a doctorate in nutrition and exercise, but all the knowledge in the world without action isn't going to do me any good. Think about the scores of professional athletes who have gone up and down from the majors to the minors or who have had their careers derailed because they didn't take care of fitness. The same is true in our, our spiritual lives. We can make destructive choices as it relates to that as well. Real faith is a belief that penetrates the heart and proves itself in action. Real faith is is evidenced by a heart that breaks for the things that break the heart of God. Do you ever pray that God would just help you to see the world that way? That he'd break your heart for, for what his heart breaks for and that you'd begin to respond like him? Real faith is a faith that follows the example of Jesus. Our God is a God of justice and he expects his children to be as well. So expected are we to be people of justice and kindness and humility that Jesus, when describing the end of days, would say in Matthew chapter 25, 41 to 46, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't welcome me in naked. And you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? You almost hear the panic in their voice. Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Can there be any doubt what God's desire is for his children as it relates to justice, faith without works, is dead. Someone has called it faith without results, is dead. James himself puts it this way at the last verse of chapter one, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There was no question in James' mind that when it came to caring for the vulnerable, that's what Christians do. And so to conclude his argument, James pulls out two big guns. Two trainers, if you will, from a bygone era. Trainer number one was a spiritual giant. His name was Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. Look at verses 21 to 24. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled saying, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And if you know your church history, this creates a little bit of a problem. The Protestant Reformation grew out of an absolute conviction that salvation is by grace and faith and faith alone and nothing more And so you might be wondering, doesn't James' argument kind of fly in the face of this? Even Martin Luther called James a rather straw-y epistle because he struggled with what James was teaching. Was James teaching, if you will, a works salvation? And I want you to hear me very carefully. Somebody last night said, were you teaching works salvation? And then they told me they left after the first half of my sermon and didn't hear the end. So hear me, no, we're not teaching works salvation. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are Christ Jesus. It is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it is because of Christ and Christ alone that any of us can stand worthy before God. Okay, our works do not save us. He quotes Genesis 15, 6 here, one of the Bible's most important verses. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Why do I say that's an important verse? Well, it's important because it's the first place in the Bible you ever see the word believe. And you'll see that word hundreds of times. The Bible um, speaks about faith and belief and the the rich language in scripture here. The setting is that Abraham has been promised uh, that he's going to be the father of a great nation, but, but, but he's childless and he's well past childbearing years and his wife is also past childbearing years. And it would be a long time before he'd see that promise come through but what the Bible tells us is that he believed God the word believed there means that he rested completely upon the promises of God he believed that God's word was secure and it was true and if God said it it was going to happen this is hundreds of years before the law is introduced it is not his works that justified him it is his faith that did that it's a beautiful thing Paul would say this too in Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So it begs the question again, now is Paul at odds with James? No. Professor and scholar Doug Moo, former Wheaton College professor, writes this, Paul denies any efficacy to the pre-conversion works of anyone. But James is pleading for the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. In other words, by your fruit, you're going to know them. If the Holy Spirit's at work in our lives, we're going to see fruit because God's going to produce that in us and through that as we live in obedience with him. And it's not going to happen at the same time for everyone. We understand that discipleship is a process, but we are going to be, be growing in that walk with Jesus and he will produce something. Listen, Abraham was so confident in God's promise. He screwed it up at first and the second son is Isaac. And, and the promise is going to come through Isaac. And then God tells him to do something weird. Go sacrifice your son Isaac. What? And in Genesis chapter 22, we get a hint to what's happening in his, in his, in his mind here. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship. And then what? We will come back to you. So God was still going to maintain his promise through Isaac. And if the sacrifice is good, well, then God's going to have to resurrect his son because we're coming back together to worship because I believe in God's word. That's the faith that Abraham Had. Now there's a second trainer we see here, and this one's a spiritual underdog and a gentile and a prostitute. And her name is Rahab. Look at the verses. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Rahab, this Gentile prostitute, became revered by the Jewish people because of her place in the unfolding narrative of God amongst the Jewish people. Her faith was evidenced by her works. Is yours? Is your faith evidenced by your works? If you were put on trial today for being a believer, you know, the old question is, would there be enough evidence to convict you of the crime? James wants us to know that faith without works is dead. In verse 20, he called those who would make the argument that they could live however they wanted to, as long as they had faith, he called them foolish. In the original language, that word foolish means empty or Shallow. I can't think of a better way to describe the life of someone who wants just enough of God to get them out of hell, but not so much as it would require any kind of change in priorities and how we treat others and what we do. That's not real faith. That's a shallow, empty faith. That's not the kind of faith that God called anyone to. You see, when Jesus came to earth, we're going to celebrate in communion in just a few minutes here. When he came to earth, he did something that was the opposite of empty and shallow. He gave his life for people like you and me. Amen. We know who we are. I know who I am. I don't deserve that. And neither do you. But God loves us so much. He Demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, not while we were perfect, not while we did the works, not while we were good people whose good works outweighed our bad works. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's beautiful. So I want to end our time here with a workout for the week. I want to give you a spiritual workout this week. We've been watching people exercise. Let me give you your spiritual workout. This week, would you ask God to bring you an opportunity to serve one of the communities that he has a special place for in his heart? Widow, orphan, refugee, prisoner, oppressed, poor. There are so many vulnerable communities. And listen, you can't solve all those problems. I can't solve all those problems. One person can't possibly make an impact in the lives of everybody in those communities, but together as a church, oh my goodness, watch out. If you're kind of stuck on, well, where are those opportunities? You can go to our website, weare4.com, And there's all sorts of opportunities with organizations that we partner with. And maybe you and your family can say, you know what, this week we're gonna volunteer in one of those organizations. Just so you know that we practice what we preach here on Friday morning, my day off, about 8.15 in the morning. My buddy texts me and says, Hey. We're going to have an impromptu feeding the homeless thing happening tomorrow in Minneapolis, right in front of the Caboose Bar, a biker bar in Minneapolis. And why don't you invite a bunch of pastors and staff from Wooddale to join you? So I did. We invited them. Was it a convenient time? No. I was preaching all weekend. I have friends from out of town, my my family, and you know what? It's the best thing I did this week. It was awesome. I got to spend time yesterday with people who are struggling with heroin addiction. I got to spend time with brothers and sisters in Christ who've hit upon hard times and we got to feed them and love them and hear their story and pray with them. Guys, that's living. It's the best life. I want to encourage you to get involved in serving the vulnerable. Uh, And I want you to tell me what you did this week. And so as you pray, God, give me an opportunity to serve. If if God surprises you this week and you have a beautiful story that comes out of that, we're not going to broadcast this all over, I promise you. I just want you to email me Brian brian.schulenberg at wooddale.org. And I want you to tell me what, what you did. I want to celebrate with you. God working in your life. God doing great things. If, if you didn't like the sermon today, you can email kyle.robinson at wooddale.org. And, <laughs> and just let him know, all right? And uh, he'll throw it away, all right? So anyway, <laughs> let's celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And uh, boy, I just, I just want to pray for you as we go into communion. So Father God, I thank you for this incredible church, these men and women who've been called by you in this generation to be your hands and feet. God, would you help all of us to see people with the eyes of Jesus? Would you help all of us to be people who would, who would seek to say yes as you bring us opportunities? God, we can't do it all individually, but together as a church, Lord, we can, we can make a difference in the lives of every one of those communities. So God, just do something great. Lord, thank you that everyone here are people who are vulnerable. We were spiritually vulnerable, spiritually dead. We were headed in a direction that was so far away from God. And Thank you, Lord, that you addressed our vulnerability through your son, Jesus Christ. So now as we go into communion, we, we celebrate that. We celebrate that while we were still sinners, Christ, that you chose to die in our place so that we might be reconciled to God. In Jesus' name, amen.